Beyond the Policy is proudly presented by Coltec Global, operating a global delivery partner, offering the best full-service staffing solutions to organizations undergoing large-scale tech transformations across all industry sectors. They mobilize teams from scratch, as well as provide high-level niche expertise on a case-by-case -case basis, delivering the right talent solution to enable their partners to reach their business goals. Coltech was formed with the view to change how organizations see the role of a talent partner. By using a product-first solution model, they became a true partner to their clients. Through their associate model, they can supply fully qualified consultants to your roles within 24 hours, eliminating the cost of delay to your projects. You can view their solutions that give their clients a competitive advantage while building tech teams globally, giving the business cutting edge delivery, all while giving their partners confidence at pace. View their solutions at coltech.io. Again, that's C-O-L-T-E-C-H dot I-O. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Policy. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Carell. We all know that scaling a product team is a critical part of reaching success as a startup. But when is the right time to do that? And even more importantly, what does success look like? My guest today knows a thing or two about that. He's Patrick Waits, and he's the founder of Coltec Global, a technology staffing agency based in London and Austin. Patrick and team have helped startups all across the globe scale their technology teams faster and smarter across many industry sectors. We touch on topics like what it means to scale a technology team, at what point in a company's lifetime does it make sense to scale, and what a VP should look for in an ideal candidate. We also discuss what a startup needs to do correctly before they even think about scaling, as well as some nightmare scenarios to avoid when scaling your startup. Please enjoy my conversation with Patrick Waits. All right, Patrick, thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, yeah, certainly has. It's uh, been a few cancellations and rearrangements, but yeah, I'm really, really excited to be on on the podcast today um yeah we're really looking forward to it yeah definitely um yeah i agree like this is uh this has been a long time coming and um definitely glad that it's happening uh so i just kind of i figured we'll dive into the conversation you know i hear a lot about at early stage startups kind of hitting that inflection point and really starting to scale your your product and engineering team um, so kind of let's start there. What does that even mean to scale a product or engineering team? It could mean something that like, well, in my world of uh, staffing, it means adding heads um, to your team or growing your business from the startup or the inception um, phase of, okay, we've got an idea, um, whether it be in short tech or whatever, we've got this idea for a, for a business um, and we need to develop a tool, develop a product and um, go to market with it. So in my world, it, where I come into that or what my my view of it would be is that it's when businesses really start to look at the talent or the type of people that they need to bring into the business to to, accept, to uh, accelerate growth uh, and accelerate, uh, you know, stakeholder value. Um, you know, obviously we're going for investment under investment, but it's, it, what it really means is just actually getting a team in place to be able to build a vision that you have as a CEO for your startup, I suppose. And... It's such a competitive, I mean, we'll probably go into this a, a bit later on, but it is such a competitive space 
that um, in turn to be able to scale a product or engineering team, you have to have the, the fundamentals of a really good story, uh, a really good idea about what, where you want the business to go, how you want it to grow, uh, and a plan that leads from the top down, um, and then basically get that in place. And then from there, you can start scaling with the right, with the right talent. Yeah. And Patrick, that's awesome. There's a lot to unpack there. And I want to get to first, you, you're talking about this idea of it's almost like there is a right time and a wrong time to scale. You said you want to make sure that that your product or what you're building is in the right yeah. place to support that. In your experience, like when when is the right time to scale versus the wrong time to scale? So I, I, I've done it my, myself. We're a startup business. Um, we scaled way too early we ran before we could bulk and then we had to sort of step back and you know cut back again uh, and go back to two people from from 10 after the first 12 months so i suppose from my experience and that's obviously in the staffing industry not engineering but it's the you know it's the same principle as a startup business the right time to scale is when you've got all your ducks in a row uh you know there's a runway of finance that can you know um you can pay people for the right amount of time you can get the right amount of talent in but also that you, you know, and it doesn't have to be, there's never ever a straight road right, from uh, here's the idea, this is where we're going to go, it's, and this is going to be plain sailing, you, you know. But it has to be some sort of idea of where, where you want to get to, or, you know, what you want these people to be doing when you start scaling, or, or what they're going to be adding, value they're going to be adding. And then if it goes like a zigzag and all round, all different curves to get to the end point, that's fine. But the right time to scale is when you've got the finance in place, you've got a plan in place. And you've probably that you've got a foundations of a leadership team that can, or if you're going to scale first by hiring the leadership team, and it depends on how you want to work it. But you've got a CEO or CTO or CEO can be the CTO, but you've got people in place that can lead the the, the team that comes in. So you have to have all your ducks in a row and the foundations in place um, before you before you try to scale. Because all that happens is you're going to be, you know build build a house or, or on sand, and it will end up crumbling down. <laughs> it happened to me. Yeah, <laughs> but and I've seen it happen to so many other tech businesses that we work with. Um, you know, throwing people at a sort of problem is never ever the right way to do it. Or just saying, okay, we've got all this money, um, let's spend it on people. Well, let's actually get make sure you've got a plan in place. And that's something that we try to help our clients with a lot more as well. Is actually looking at the strategic thinking and how you where how you're going to scale. Um, because if you don't have the right plan in place, then it's just a waste of time. Yeah, and money. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you talk about the a wrong plan in place, we, we've kind of I outlined what it looks like to kind of scale right, to, to make sure you have a foundation in place, a plan in place. What can happen if maybe you, you wait too long to scale, right? Because you, you talked about the, the inverse of that, scaling yeah. too early. But what happens when you scale too late? Like, or have you experienced a, a client or, or something that that, that you felt was the right time to scale and, and they, they held back. What, what happens in that, that scenario? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult because there's no like, although I've just banged on about there is a right time, there's never like a perfect time. You've got, but you have to have the basics of an idea and something that you can build on in place. Um, but it definitely is you can't wait too long because all that happens is that the talent might move on to different, uh, someone else who's got a similar idea to you might come through. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, take the people that you would like to have um, joined your business. So it's, it's a really, really fine balancing act. Um, but you can't rest on your laurels. It's a fast-moving world, uh, the technology space, insurtech especially. Um, I mean, we're seeing different companies sprout up with time and 
you know, the amount of investment that's going into the area is is, uh, is crazy. So you have to be able to move quickly on and, and have convictions uh, behind your decisions. So say, so this is what we're going to do, we're going to go for it. And then if it does mess up, okay, we can pivot and then try, try something else. I mean, a lot of the best businesses out there have started off as one thing and then become something else because they've had to quickly pivot, whether it's due to a pandemic um, or, I mean, it's a recent example, or just anything, a changing scenario, a changing, um, a changing the marketplace. So you have to be ready to adapt. And if you sit there resting your nose too long, then people are just going to pass you by. Yeah. No, you talked about kind of uh, current scenarios and, and different different things that are that are going on in the world. One one thing that I, I think anyone in the tech business and and insure tech for that matter um, have noticed a series of layoffs with some pretty um, yeah pretty pretty well known companies. What does that do to one? What does that do to the marketplace when you're trying to recruit talent and there's just this sudden unexpected influx? And then two, from a hiring company's perspective, like how quick do they have to operationalize, like to potentially take advantage of the, this really big, talented pool of people suddenly coming on the market at once? I think all, all to, to answer the last part of that question first, all businesses should be ready to take someone on if they're, if they're good enough. If the right person comes up, you should be able to, uh, you should act quickly. Because especially in this marketplace, people don't hang around for long. And, you know, we've had a couple of recent examples. I won't mention names because I don't think it's fair, but um, of big companies letting a lot of people go and then the marketplace becoming flooded. But it was not really flooded because you st- the, 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 the talent pool is, is quite sparse because everyone's hiring the same skills. Everyone needs full stack developers. Everyone needs software engineers. Everyone needs DevOps engineers, so on and so forth. So... Just the fact that you know, if, you know, businesses that let um, a lot of people go, it does add to the marketplace, but it's still very, 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 very competitive. So any company has to be ready that if the right person comes along to snap them up quick enough. So that just in turn, it just makes sure that it goes back to my first point of having a plan in place and knowing what you need to do and what you need, um, and if you know, and having the finance ready there um, and not leaving it too close to the bone. Um, what it does. Uh, the first part of the question in terms of what it does to the marketplace is it gives sort of an unease or people sort of worried about their roles. No, I think it's just all it does is makes it even more competitive than it already is, um, which as, as a recruiter or someone trying to, you know, we're speaking to people every day, um, you know, trying to find more passive candidates or we're speaking to people every day who've got 10, 15, 20 job offers. Um, so... All that will do is just means that instead of having ten or fifteen, they have five or ten. <laughs> Got it. But it's, and it's but it's a terrible, terrible thing whenever companies have to do these layoffs or anything like that because it's not just. I mean, you're talking about the marketplace in general, but for the individual, um, all of a sudden the world's turned around and they're back on the job job market looking. So you know, as part of our job um, as a staffing agency and and any recruitment agency out there, um, it's about making sure that we're finding people. We're helping those. We're helping people that have been laid off. I had this sudden change in scenario, and we can help them as quickly as possible by being involved with the best possible clients that, that we can. Patrick, you bring up some some good points, and in in my mind, kind of goes to the flip side. I'm curious, like, let's say that I'm a I'm a 
a first time software developer, I'm trying to get into this market. I want to join a startup. What does that process look like from your side? Like helping, helping candidates find the right placements. Like what can folks expect during that process? You got to kiss a lot of frogs. Um, definitely. Um, so my job and anyone in staffing has mentioned is to, is to match is, is merely a broker in, in a situation and matching a person with, with the right company. So what they can expect if they're working with a good agency or someone who knows the marketplace is to you know, have a real in-depth conversation, motivations, where, what, you, what you're looking for, the type of business, the type of values, culture. Um, you know, some people want to be only work remote. Some people actually only want to work in office. Um, some people like to have an office with a dog in it. Some people don't. Um, it, you know, they're just, you know, menial things, but they mean a lot when you're presenting the right opportunity to people. So you need to work with someone that can understand the right opportunity for you and really, really dig deep into that and then be able to translate that into having a conversation with their client book and saying, well, <laughs> you want someone who can go out there and market you out to the, to the, to the, to the market, to, to take you to people and say, look, I've got this guy here. I've got Andrew. He's great. He's done X, Y, and Z. He's looking for the opportunity because a piece of paper can only say so much. Uh, and especially if you're a first-time engineer or just trying to break into the market, you have to show more around your uh, willingness or your keenness to be involved with that type of company. So working with someone who understands your motivations, what you need, why you want that, and what you, you know, your expectations in your career, having that person on your side who can then market you out and explain you, you know, sell you into these companies is vitally important. So if you're a first-time engineer, my, my suggestion would be to find an agent, not necessarily me, but it can be, um, uh, who can, uh, who can um, understand your needs and, and show you to the right people. I'd also say you don't need someone like me, which is probably a stupid thing for me to say. But it, it, let's talk about Austin. Um, it's the marketplace I know that we're, we're heavily involved in. Um, there's so many meetups, uh, you know, meetup groups, uh, happy hours, events uh, available for you to go out and market yourself. Um, so it doesn't take a lot to go on to meetup.com, type in events coming up in your area, and you can see who will be attending and then say, well, actually, that looks like a business that I'd like to be involved with. And go in and introduce yourself personally, because there's nothing better. Um, and I, I've experienced myself from being in Austin. And nothing better than actually putting a face to face to a name and having a conversation um, rather than, you know, sending an email. Um, so if you can get yourself embedded within the community, then that, that's only going to help. That would be my main, my main advice. Yeah. And so kind of for the, the company side, like I had never thought about meetup groups as a way of hiring. You know, I see traditional like social posting blogs, like trying to get brand recognition and things of that nature. Is that something that you recommend to the clients that you work with too? Like getting more yeah. involved in local meetup groups and community? 100%. I think that's so just that's the whole um, ethos that we've taken at, at Coltec. Um, that's how we met. Yeah. Uh, having a conversation about the, uh, you know, Austin uh, InsureTech ATX. Because we're really, really, in, for us and for any company, you want to be around like-minded people. You want to, you know, you want to get the, the right type of people, the right type of personalities that, that you would like to be involved in your company. So if you're hosting a meetup about something that's important to you, whether it be, you know, the latest trends in, in short tech or something, whatever it may be, you know, building a tech team. We, we hosted the, uh, for the FinTech 
uh, Austin meetup um, in November, you know, how to, you know, scaling the tech team within the fintech market. Um, and then you get people attending that obviously care about that type of thing. And then you're in a room with, the, with all, this, all, all like-minded people. So having a conversation, oh, this is what we're doing here, um, gives you an opportunity to explain a bit more about your business. Uh, the brand recognition that you'd get from social media or anything else, but it's in person. Uh, and yeah, it's, and obviously we do on, you can do online roundtables or wherever it may be, but um, it gets people to understand a bit more about your business, but also the people that attend are people that are interested in what you're doing. So therefore that would be um, a good way of attracting people to work for your business. Yeah. And I'd imagine too, like just having the, that kind of in-person networking um, can probably shorten a interview cycle for, oh, for a candidate. Ten, yeah. So uh, here's an example. Um, the InsureTech, fin, uh, InsureTech, the Austin uh, FinTech meetup that we did in November, uh, had a guy who went, uh, and one, again, I won't say names and companies, I don't think it's fair, but um, there's a, a business that was on the panel. Um, a guy that went there, enjoyed what one of the panelists had to say. Um, they spoke. Two weeks later, he was working there. Wow. Two weeks. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's, um, that's how quick it can happen. Because they're obviously, they've engaged, they've had this conversation, and then they've arranged the interview. I didn't even know anything about it. Um, it was good. I need to send an invoice. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, it's, so it's, um, I forgot about that one. No, um, but it just shows that they've met, they've engaged, they've seen, they've, you know, we like what you're doing. We've actually got a position open for someone like you. Come and meet the team tomorrow. Met the team. And away they go. They started working with the, with the business. Um, so that's just one live real example. And that happens all the time. It's just, it's just the same as anything, Andrew, like you've worked in, in, in industries. If someone's been recommended to you by someone um, or you've met someone, it's a, a lot shorter interview process than, say, someone who's just been sent over by, by someone like me. Because um, you obviously want to, you know, qualify the candidate and, and so on and so forth and go through the stringent and do your due diligence. But if it's someone that you know is embedded in the community as much as you are, it makes your life so much more, so so much easier. So I recommend any business, like these podcasts like this or conversations that you have with, um, with other companies, uh, roundtables, meetup events in your office location, um, anything like that um, will bring the type of people that you want to your business. Yeah. Is, is two weeks a... a- I, I'm, I'm not a software engineer. I've never gone through that. Is two weeks a really quick turnaround time? And if so, like, what's the, what's the average kind of like hiring cycle look like for an individual? Usually, if so, from the time that we get given a requirement from a client to the time that they're working on site, it's usually about six to eight weeks. Okay. Um, but the problem will be with this one, they didn't have, the, there wasn't a, a, a live requirement. It was yeah. this guy. So we're talking about, oh, if how the, companies um get themselves ready operationally for if there's a sudden you know layoff in the x business or y business there wasn't a requirement at this company but because they met this particular person and thought he'd be perfect for us they made one and then that just made that it happen but the usual so that that's that and that is unusually quick um and i think he was available at the time it just all sort of sort of stars aligned in that situation but usually obviously including that this period and you know, you're probably looking at like anywhere between three to four interview stages. You know, there might be a tech test in there. And then obviously, you know, it's period. So anywhere from sort of six to eight weeks. We like to try and get things wrapped up for our clients from four to six. But we just say eight as a, you know, 
so we don't promise too much. But you know, if you're a software engineer on the market, you there's no reason why you couldn't get into a new start a new role from the day you look within six weeks. Yeah. One thing that I've always been curious about, um, so I work in the insure tech space. Um, I'll say that software engineers or product managers that have an insurance background are few and far between. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's tough to find and it, it makes perfect sense, like relative to, to other technologies. You know, it's not as sought after of a, a business for companies that are either in insure tech or other types of technology that maybe don't have as much talent in there. What do you say to companies that are looking to hire software engineering talent, product managers, um, and, and to get them up to speed? Like, how do you bridge that gap? Is that something you should be scared of? No, I think upskilling is important in any sector, um, whether it's insurance, fintech, you know, um, healthcare. You know, it, it, if you're a good software engineer, you're a good software engineer, right? Because um, the, And the, the tech stacks that people are using are not... Uh, Nine's at nine times out of ten, not dissimilar. It's just obviously the industry experience that you might potentially be uh, be in need of. But I don't think that businesses should be worried about upskilling um, the right engineer um, or discounting people because they haven't got particular industry experience. Because unless it's a really, really niche thing, and obviously there are a few things within the insurance sector that you need to know. If you don't, so we've had a lot, we've had experience with that before, like within the underwriting and whatever it may be. So there's parts of that that you need to know. But in general, I think that if you've got a good engineer, you can upskill them with the with the industry knowledge if they have the right person sitting with them. Um, so if you've got a good head of dev or director of engineering or, or whatever it may be, tech lead, if you've got someone sitting next to them that has their wealth of experience who can sort of guide them and they're there to, to cut the code, then that, that can work really well as well. Um, but at times it is unavoidable. You have to have certain experience to be able to do a, a job. You know, that, that is the way it is. But 75% of the time you can probably upskill people to, to do the role as well. So it's a balancing act. But businesses shouldn't be scared of it. Okay. So, I mean, so that's a, that's a really good call out of, you know, things that maybe a VP of engineering might overlook in the hiring process. What are some other things that you would caution a VP of engineering or whoever's looking to scale um, this team? What are some, some things that, that, that you've seen may happen more frequently than you think and, and how to kind of avoid those obstacles? Years of experience and people worrying about that. So, People are like, oh, you know, he's, uh, he's saying he's a senior engineer, but he's only got three years' experience. Yeah, but they're three really, really good years. Um, uh, you know, that he's done some really, really good stuff. He's worked for some really great companies, or she has worked for very great companies. And in the meantime, they've been writing their own code in their basement for 10 years before that. Um, you know, I've been looking at, a lot of time looking at, C again, it's going to sound stupid, looking at CVs might not even be, I don't think that's going to be, even be a thing. Um, in a, a few years' time. There's so many different uh, open source uh, repositories, GitHub, Stack Overflows, and everything else that people can to look at to see people's codes that me writing on the CV that I worked at X company for two years and this company for three years, it's, it's pointless. Um, so I think that's one thing that I've always, I always struggle with is explaining it to sort of hiring managers or like VPs of engineering or whatever, maybe CTOs, CEOs, that yes, someone might have 10 years experience, 
but the, the industry is changing so often that actually the, the three years that this person's got is exactly what you need rather than the 10 years that, that they've got. Um, so that's one issue or one thing that I see slip-ups a lot on. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there's certain roles that you need to have, that, you know, the, the management or leadership experience. But if you're looking for an engineer, then, you know, we can overlook that. Um, I think, yeah, as well, one of the things that we've incorporated, which has worked really, really well, is video interviewing. So rather than just sending over a piece of paper or, or a CV, um, we send, we ask clients to ask us um, to give us three questions that they'd ask uh, a particular candidate. And then we get the, we have got, a, we've created our own uh, Coltec TV interview platform. We've done it at a really good time and just before the pandemic when everyone started using Zoom and then no one wants to use Coltec TV. So it's great timing on that one. But um, it's an interview platform. You put your questions in and the candidate will answer, record themselves answering the question. We send the CV and the video. So then the client can see how they interact because a lot of the time, again, it's about not just about what's on the piece of paper and what they've written. It's about how you interact with your team, explaining how you would go about certain scenarios. So um, I think that's a big, big, um, been a big eye-opener for a lot of our clients as well because they might see someone CV and not necessarily be interested. But once they see the video and see them explaining their experience and how they'd go about certain scenarios, um, it changes their mind. So, um, yeah, I think what, a big uh, piece of advice or a big thing that, that, that's been really helpful for us and the clients that we're working for is trying to modernise the way that we go about our recruitment. Um, that it hasn't changed since the fax machine, but we're dealing with technology that's changing every day. So why, why is the staffing or why, why when you're trying to scale your tech team, you're still using methods that we were using back in the 80s? Um, it makes no sense. When we've got video interviewing platforms, you know, there's different, as I say, there's different repositories where people put in their code. So biggest mistake Two, well, I've rambled on a little bit, but the first one is um, worrying about years of experience over actual, you know, quality of work. And then uh, two, not having a modern process in which people go through, in which you're looking to staff. If you're using, you know, just CVs and booking in telephone calls and fit else, then that, you know, that, that was in the 80s, um, early 90s. We're now, you know, 2020s. Let's, um, let's modernise that. Video interviewing, uh, you know, psychometric testing, um, whatever it may be because then you will, you'll end up finding better, better developers or engineers. Yeah, I can imagine that, um, you know, top-tier talent that is, is looking for, for new work probably uh, is attracted to that. They, they want to be challenged. They want to be doing meaningful work in a, like, modern way. And, yeah, why, why, why not move the, the hiring process towards that as well? Patrick, before I let you go, we, we've talked about a lot of really, really good hiring advice scaling a product team and i'd be remiss if i didn't ask for your prediction what do you think the future of work is going to look like are we going back to offices are we going to be fully remote somewhere in the middle where where do you see that moving in the next i don't know like two to three years it's a really good question um it's horses for courses right so certain businesses we need to you need to be together in an office for whatever reason so my, my company um, we're in the office, but well, we only we, have, we we do a four day week at Caltech, um, but um, we don't work Fridays. But um, we're all in the office four days a week because we're sort of it's an, an environment where we sort of need to share ideas, I and mean, it's just easier. We we work better that way. There's other companies of our ilk that are all remote, and it works better for them. So I think what will happen, and this like this conversation happens all the time, but it's going to sound really weird. It's no one's business, really. What a, a company does, if it works better, better for them. 
uh, and everyone's spread out all over because it's more and more we're seeing remote teams in you know South America, across Europe, you know Middle East, wherever it may be, because companies are coming truly global, and that obviously expands their 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 reach for talent. So that those type, if you're doing that, then they're never ever going to be able to all be in one office. Um, if you're a company in Austin and your plan is that we're going to stay here in Austin and we're going to build the hub from here and we are going to go global, but everyone's going to be here, then it probably makes sense to all be in the office. So depending on where your business, how your business plan, growth plans are, or where you see your business is where it would be. Um, if I'm going to like hazard a guess, I think it won't be dissimilar to how it is now in over the next two to three years. Some businesses will be hybrid and some businesses will be fully in office and some people will be remote. But what has been really good is that we've seen that all all those options work. There's not one size fits all. It's, you know, gone are the days where everyone's got to be in the office all the time. I mean, I'm at home at the moment. Um, Just saying everyone needs to be in the office and I'm at home. But um, yeah, Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, know, it it, it works. Whatever works for your company. And I think what will happen now is what we'll see is that businesses will feel they've got the freedom to make that decision rather than stick to a status quo. That's the most, uh, and I suppose that's the best thing that, that can come out of this this whole situation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we were all forced to test things that we would have otherwise just been too risk averse to, to try out. You know, it's, it's, it's a big ask to, to really shift your working model as far as um, human talent. And, and yeah, I think, yeah, to your point, the best thing is there's no one right way to do it. You know, it, it depends on the person. It depends on the company. And, and I think now companies will have the, the confidence to, to say like, all right, let's really do what works for us. And, yeah. you know, we'll go from there. Yeah. I think that, that's, that's been, a, that's been a great thing to say. If you having such a big change in, in, in forcing the transformation has, has proven that it, it can work. So if it works for you, do it. If you don't, don't. Indeed. Patrick, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I appreciate you coming on today. Where can people go to find more about you, Coltech, what you're doing? Um, LinkedIn is always the best. I'm always on there posting different things. Um, but yeah, if any, anyone's got any questions or um, you know, heard anything I've said and like me to actually explain it <laughs> better, <laughs> then uh, feel free just to contact me on LinkedIn. That's, the, that's my best place. Awesome. All right, Patrick, I appreciate your time. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you when I'm back in Austin in hopefully, well, definitely May, hopefully March. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When you're coming out, let us know. We'll, we'll put together a really nice Intratech ATX event and uh, it'll be a good old time. Perfect. Uh, thank you very much. That does it for this episode of Beyond the Policy. If you've missed prior episodes and want to catch up, please visit us at howyouinsurethat.com. Again, that's howyouinsurethat.com. And to never miss an episode in the future, please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you download and listen to shows. Until next time, thanks for joining us and stay risky.